they're perhaps the most confusing couple to ever come out of the royal family. So how exactly did Sarah Ferguson and Prince Andrew fall in love? And how did they fall apart? Welcome to the first episode of a very special series by Shameless Media. Andrew and Fergie, a very royal scandal. Hello. Hello, Zara McDonald. How are we? We are so good because we haven't done a royal scandal yet in scandal. How is that possible? Because you and I, you in particular. I was going to say, how is that possible? Because you ha- you have roadblocked a few. <laughs> you are a royal groupie, though. We do love our royals here at Shameless. It's weird that we've been doing scandal for like not a year and a half, but well over a year now and no royals have made it in. I think for me and for you, when we decide to do something like this, we always want to make sure that largely we are creating new stuff and we're not rehashing stuff that's already out there in Mm. the podcasting space. And to be fair to us, there's a lot about the royals everywhere. Yes. I mean, exhibit A, the crown. So for us, after I read Tina Brown's book, The Palace Papers, one of the more interesting threads for me was Prince Andrew. He is one of the most bizarre royals. I mean, truthfully, he's one of the most bizarre quote unquote celebrities I've ever seen. And I was like, I'm I'm desperate to go even deeper. Yeah, and this is the thing. I think a lot of people might have thought that we would have started a royal series with Diana. That seems to be the most obvious story to come out of the royal family in the last 100 years. But because so many people have done Diana well, you and I really found our attention going towards the toe-sucking scandal that threw Sarah Ferguson's life into a tailspin in the 1990s. Like, this is a scandal that has always intrigued both of us and we were so desperate to sink our teeth into it. There are so many layers to all of this, right? Because it's not just the toe sucking and it's not just like all the shit we already know about Prince Andrew. There is cheating and affairs. There's a whole marriage breakdown. Some of the most god-awful PR decisions you will (laughs) ever, ever hear about. Secret deals with the tabloids. Some really sticky money headaches. Mm. We'll talk a lot about money through the next couple of episodes. I do genuinely think this has been one of the most surprising scandals we've done in terms of how much I feel like is here and how much I've enjoyed working on it. Oh, yes. It is juicy. I cannot wait to talk to the listeners about what we've uncovered with our researcher, Justine Landis-Hanley. So to do this all justice, guys, we need to head back to the year of 1960. That was the year when someone called Prince Andrew was born. Alrighty, Mish. So as you mentioned before, Prince Andrew was born in 1960. He is, of course, one of Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip's four children. He has two older siblings, little-known Prince Charles and (laughs) little-known Princess Anne, and a young brother, Prince Edward. Dare I say Prince Edward is a little little known. No, 100%. <laughs> Prince Edward is little known. The others, not so much. Now, there was quite a big age gap between Andrew and his older siblings. He was actually born 10 years after his older sister. Now, Tina Brown, who wrote the best-selling book, The Palace Papers, that I actually touched on before, which we did read in prep for this episode and as enjoyment too. (laughs) As a hobby. (laughs) Said that Andrew was kind of born in the Queen's second batch of kids. Yeah. From the reading I've done, it definitely seemed like she had Prince Charles, Prince Anne, got used to parenting, got used to being the monarch as a parent and then sort of had a rest and went back to it. Yeah, and by lots of reports, her third child, Andrew, is her favourite. Many have said that these two, Prince Andrew and the Queen, were super close and that the Queen had a particular fondness for him. As Tina Brown wrote in the Palace Papers, by the time she had had Andrew, she had really also settled into being 
the queen. She had found herself kind of juggling the many duties that she has, the very busy life she has a lot better than in the past. And she was kind of more free. She could do things with him that she couldn't do with her first two children, like picking him up from prep school. From his late teens, Andrew was considered the hot, charismatic (laughs) bachelor of the royal family. And I know that sounds a bit funny to say now, (laughs) but it's absolutely true. Tina Brown wrote that, and I quote, By his teens, Andrew was one of the royal family's burgeoning assets. Debonair, light-hearted and manly with a toothy Kennedy-esque smile. Yeah, for example, when Andrew was 16 years old, he actually went with his parents to the 1976 Montreal Olympics and a paper there described him as, and I quote, six feet of sex appeal. When he returned to Canada the following year, apparently there were girls gathered at the airport to greet him, screaming, we want Andy. By 1979, at the age of 19, Prince Andrew enrolled at the Royal Naval College undergoing pilot training. Now, I feel like I want to take stock here and kind of talk to you about Andrew's reputation in the years before he met and got together with Fergie or you know, full name Sarah Ferguson. Yeah, well, according to People magazine, as a young man, Andrew was known, and I quote, for his naval career and romantic exploits. Let's talk about those romantic exploits because pretty much from the age of 18, Andrew was known by the nickname Randy Andy, or as the Daily Mail once put it, Randy Andy and his web of arm candy. I mean, that is one way to rhyme. Tina Brown agreed that the press were fixated on Andrew's love life in the same way that they had been on his older brother Charles but I think the difference is much like you'll see and have seen with Prince Harry and Prince William when you're not the heir to the throne you have a certain level of flexibility with your life that you know William and Charles never had Tina Brown wrote that Andrew preferred minor models and starlets compared to the high society girls that his older brother dated, of course, because these women weren't going to become queens. As British journalist Alan Rusbridger wrote in 1986, that is the problem with being the younger brother of the heir to the British throne. The press can, on the whole, think of only one interesting thing about you, and that is who you go out with and are destined to marry. One of Andrew's most famous and scandalous relationships around this time was actually with a 24-year-old American photographer and actress called Kathleen Stark, or Koo Stark, as the media referred to her. They met in 1981 on a blind date a few months before Andrew's 21st birthday party. They were reportedly introduced by mutual friends and the Prince was said to be absolutely besotted with her. But importantly, Andrew actually kept his relationship with Koo under wraps. And for a long time, it was actually kept a secret from the tabloids to their credit. We are going to talk more about Koo and Andrew Mm. in a second. But for now, we need to sort of follow the timeline because it was around this time that he was undergoing a heap of military training, Mish. Yeah, and he was doing really, really well at it. At the age of 21, Prince Andrew was actually given the best pilot award at college, which was presented by his father father at graduation. As I say that, (laughs) it does dawn on me. It does (laughs) dawn on me. Does that truly mean he was the best pilot or does it mean he was the most shiny pilot? (laughs) Yeah, you pose a wonderful question, particularly (laughs) when it's presented by his father. In 1982, Prince Andrew rose to even greater prominence after heading off on an actual battleship for an actual war. Yeah, a brief history lesson for a few seconds, if the listeners will allow us. That year, Argentina invaded the Falkland Island, a tiny bit of the British Empire. The Prime Minister of the UK
UK at the time, Margaret Thatcher, sent British troops in to defend the island. So there was a very real possibility that Prince Andrew could be harmed or even killed in action, something that made the British government nervous and obviously the royal family. That said, the Queen fully supported his decision. Yeah, according to the Palace Papers, Andrew's service during the war included flying his helicopter as a decoy target to divert missiles away from British ships. And after two missiles hit the SS Atlantic conveyor, he piloted the helicopter that rescued the surviving British crewmen who'd been thrown into the sea. Big job. Incredibly so. Yeah, so The Guardian wrote that Prince Andrew was sort of redeemed in the mainstream as a result of this stint as a helicopter pilot in the Falklands. They also noted that the media essentially sucked up to him during this time, pointing out how one biographer by the name of Andrew Morton wrote that Prince Andrew's arrival, and I quote, has given a new meaning to the initials H-R-H. With Andrew, they stand for his royal heartthrob. <laughs> that means sure. As one tabloid noted, nobody called him Randy Andy, a prince whose only claim to fame was his preference for blue-eyed blondes. No, it's Andrew the Warrior Prince, a hero home from the wars. Andrew the Warrior Prince. Yes, very much the narrative that people were desperate for. We haven't just got this royal guy who was born into privilege. This is a guy that likes to fight for his country. And for his lady because it's time to go back to Koo Stark if you'll allow us. Yeah, let's do that. (laughs) According to Tina Brown, Koo was waiting for Andrew in his rooms at Buckingham Palace when he returned from the war. She even joined him for a romantic week at Balmoral and the Queen apparently really liked her. She found her to be bright and congenial. But unfortunately Andrew and Koo's relationship was properly discovered by the press a year and a half after they started dating and all hell absolutely broke loose. In October 1982, a then 22-year-old Prince Andrew and a 26-year-old Koo were holidaying in the private island of Mystique, but news of the trip, Mish, leaked to the press. Yeah, and when they returned, they were actually the centre of a media storm with the tabloids up in arms over the idea that the prince might actually be in a serious relationship with an American actress. Feels a little familiar. Doesn't it ever. Who later wrote about this? She said, We landed in Mystique and immediately found ourselves subjected to a frenzy of media attention. We'd managed to be together for about a year and a half before we were discovered and the point at which we were finally exposed and hounded by the press was rather emotional for both of us. We carried on despite the attention and there was, from that point, a bounty on my head. The attention in those days was unprecedented and the paparazzi were everywhere. I was once dragged from the back of a motorbike by the hair. I was hit in the solar plexus by a long lens. Photographers on motorbikes literally rode into restaurants to attempt to get pictures of us together. Wow. Things were made worse after the British tabloids got a hold of still photos from Koo's performance in the 1976 film The Awakening of Emily. So just a timeline check. These are stills from a movie she shot six years before. The film featured a lesbian shower scene and as we can all guess... The royal family and the media didn't take too kindly to that. Yeah, I mean, the headlines read, Secret Love of the Prince and a Nude Star. Another one read, I saw Andrew leave her flat in the mornings. He always looked rather tired. 
Another one that read Queen Bands Coup and one more that said If Not Coup Who. Yeah, responding to the scandal, the palace said at the time, we do not know if the Queen was aware of the girl's acting career before she was invited to Balmoral. The girl. The girl. The girl's acting career. Andrew and Coup split up in 1983 under this pressure, this intense pressure from the press. Coup later said this, the amount of attention and pressure on me became unbearable. It was a nightmare. I mean, it just sounds like a total nightmare. Everyone that ever marries into the royal family says this. The impact of that relationship was huge for Koo. She recently revealed in an open letter to Meghan Markle, actually, that she moved homes every two years because her address kept getting published. She wrote, Because of my personal experience and association with the royal family, people are still interested in me decades after the headlines faded. It is absurd. So that's Kustak. We're going to leave Kustak here because it wasn't long before Andrew was seen around town with other women. He continued to be linked to a number of women in the public eye, including model Tracy Lamb, an actress by the name of Vicky Hodge, who had previously dated Ringo Starr. Then Prince Andrew also was connected to Catherine Rabbit, who went on to later actually play a Bond girl. Yeah, so that was until 1985, but it was in 1985 that Andrew met the woman he'd eventually settled down with, a woman by the name of Sarah Margaret Ferguson. Before we dive into how Sarah and Andrew met, let's talk about who Sarah is. Sarah Ferguson, who popularly became known as Fergie, was raised in Dummer, Hampshire. Her dad was Major Ronald Ferguson, who also actually became Prince Charles' polo manager for a time. Sarah Ferguson was also actually connected to royalty. She is a descendant of King Charles II and his mistress, Lucy Walters. They never just get plucked out of nowhere, do they? In 1973, when Fergie was 13, her mum actually left her dad to marry an Argentinian polo player, leaving her dad, Ronald, to raise Sarah and her 15-year-old sister, Jane. Ronald has said that, and I quote, it was a trauma, a bit of a fright, to put it mildly, for everyone. It meant that at that vulnerable age, they didn't have mother. So father took over and did his best. So interesting. It would be hard having, especially at that time, a single father raising two teenage girls in the prime of their teen years. If there's any age that I don't want my mum to walk out on the family, it's 13. Absolutely. So Sarah went to boarding school in Berkshire. Her classmates said that she was a prankster who, and I quote, put salt in the sugar bowl, led the cream pie fights and loved to stage illicit midnight feasts in the dorm. At 16, Fergie moved to London to attend secretarial school and tried to become a secretary, but according to a former colleague, was a nightmare to manage. Apparently, she liked partying and staying out late a little too much and was always on the phone instead of working. <laughs> yeah, she worked at the Covent Garden Art Gallery for a time before moving to two public relations firms and eventually ended up at a graphics firm. In 1982, she actually dated a guy by the name of Patty McNally, a former race driver manager and widowed father of two who was more than 20 years older than her. Now, they dated for three years but reportedly never lived together. The Washington Post later described their relationship as, and I quote, one of glamorous European trips, frequent skiing holidays and numerous occasions where Fergie was seen to be anxiously waiting for McNally beside a Grand Prix racing strip. I mean, sounds like a good relative to me. <laughs> it sounds like the OG version for the F1 fans who are listening. 
of Christian Horner and Jerry Halliwell. Yeah, except there's a 20-year age gap here that that relationship doesn't have. Look, apparently, unfortunately for Fergie, McNally constantly cheated on her, even sometimes right in front of her eyes. She allegedly broke things off with him for good in 1985 after Patty refused her marriage ultimatum. That brings us to June 1985 when Prince Andrew was 25, Fergie was about to turn 26 and they were about to date. Fergie and Andrew actually first met back when they were children playing on a polo field. Feels like the most British aristocratic (laughs) fact ever. (laughs) They reconnected as adults thanks to Princess Diana. Now, Fergie and Diana were actually fourth cousins. Their mums had gone to school together. Plus, as we had mentioned before, Fergie's dad actually ended up being Prince Charles's polo manager. So Fergie and her family definitely moved in the same circles as Prince Andrew and his family. Yeah, it was through polo that Fergie connected with Diana again and became sort of an older, wiser confidant for Diana, who was a little under two years younger than her. Diana was already with Charles at this point and apparently wanted Sarah to become her lady-in-waiting, but that request was denied. Sarah even had a front-row seat to to their royal wedding in 1981. Diana actually invited Sarah to family occasions and was responsible for Fergie eventually getting together with Prince Andrew. In 1985, the Queen asked Diana to suggest some people for the Queen's Ascot weekend house party <laughs> at Windsor Castle and so Diana suggested Fergie. Diana actually introduced Fergie and Andrew at that event. Yeah, according to Tina Brown, by the end of their lunch, the Prince, and I quote, was coaxing Fergie to eat chocolate profiteroles. And the romance took off from there. The press, beginning to tire of Diana's fashionable supremacy, embraced the breeze, horse-riding country gel Fergie as a breath of fresh air. The Queen was relieved that at least this future daughter-in-law could talk with authentic enthusiasm about horses and dogs and the joys of the English countryside. We are going to talk far more about the union between Andrew and Fergie in a second. But first, a word from today's sponsor. All right, Zara. So of their getting together, Andrew later said, it was at Ascot, as it were, that the whole thing took off. But it wasn't Ascot as such when we realised that there was anything in it. It was later on. (laughs) Cryptic. It's not the most romantic quote either, is it? No. Like, I don't expect my partner to say it was love at first sight, but I would expect him (laughs) to say... I did realise there was probably something in it the moment we met. Am I crazy? Also, reading that, maybe I'm putting words in Prince Andrew's mouth. It was like, it was at Ascot that the whole thing took off, reads as that's when, when we, we started had, sleeping together. Yes. We had sex, but then we realised that there was anything in it later on. That's exactly how I read it as well. <laughs> now, after their meeting in Ascot, Andrew actually went back to sea duty as a naval lieutenant. And Fergie went back to her life in South London where she shared an apartment with a friend. But flowers started to arrive from Andrew. Yeah, at the beginning of 1986, Fergie was invited to be the royal family's guest on their regular New Year's holiday in Sandringham. Not long after, Fergie and Andrew were spotted holding hands in public. Writer and royal journalist Judy Wade said that Diana did all that she could to help facilitate the relationship, partly because Fergie offered her a companionship that she didn't have in the royal family. She said she allowed them to meet secretly at Kensington Palace and she arranged little weekends and dinners for them. And she gave them every possible encouragement because she was very lonely and she didn't feel there was anyone in the palace that she had much in common with. So Sarah Ferguson was exactly what 
she needed. I do love this thread in the Prince Andrew and Sarah Ferguson story that Diana and Fergie had such a beautiful bond in the early days and were such good friends. Like to think of, we know so much that Diana was very, very lonely when she was serving as a royal to know that there was a time where she felt like a lifeboat was coming into the royal family in the form of Sarah Ferguson is just really lovely. Yeah, I agree with that for sure. And it's certainly something I didn't know. I yeah. didn't know that these two were that close from the early days. The only thing that one part of me thinks when I read that quote is like, if you're having such an awful time in this family and know how fucked this entire structure is, if you've got a friend, would you say go and save yourself, run. Do you know what I mean? To, to drag them into that. I might be overthinking, but part of me is like, what would I do? Or is the most human thing being like, oh my God, company, come on in. Come onto this ship with me. Well, maybe in Diana's head, maybe for a time she thought the main issue here is not the palace, it's not the royal family, it's my loneliness yeah, and my true. husband. And if I'm not feeling lonely and if I have a buddy in here with me, We'll both really enjoy it and both get the most out of it. Yeah, that's also probably very true. In February 1986, things between Andrew and Fergie became even more public and serious looking when Fergie showed up with Diana for an official tour of Andrew's ship that was docked in the Thames River. Fergie then went skiing with Diana and Charles, during which reporters repeatedly asked if she and Andrew were planning on getting married. It's so interesting to hear this constant pressure from the press when it comes to royal relationships. We're talking about Feb 1986. These two only met and connected in the middle of 1985. The pressure on royals to settle down and decide who they're going to marry mere months into yeah. dating the person is pretty intense. It's also interesting to me because Prince Andrew kept his relationship with Kustak under wraps for so long. Mm. But clearly, and I don't know if this was because Fergie was such a good mate of Diana, so they were all just hanging out publicly. Clearly this was public pretty early. Or was it a potential that Prince Andrew had his years and it was acknowledged by the palace he would have his years of dating women they would deem unsuitable for royal yeah. life? And then he got to an age where they said, okay, you're old enough, mature enough to now be dating seriously. You will be dating kind of vetted women that we approve of and we expect something to come of it. Well, it's really interesting you say that because when I was reading the Palace Papers by Tina Brown, there was this thing that I learned that I didn't know that was this agreement that the British press had with the royal family while Prince Harry and Prince William were in high school and college. Mm. And it was like this blanket ban on reporting certain areas of their life. Like they would not give them any access and the British press wouldn't hound them. It was like wow. they can live their life in private. But the minute they graduated, it was like all hell breaking loose. We have full access now they are on their own so it's like an amnesty when the boys are young there's kind of this unspoken rule that we or let spoken them, rule or spoken rule firm rule that we let the boys do what they want to do when the boys get to a certain age that they're deemed proper adults they're our property they're our property we expect them to be dating women that are fit for the palace I think so. So when you say that, I don't know if the same sort of arrangement would have at all been in place, but Andrew was 21 or so when he was dating Koo Stark, so I wouldn't be surprised if it was easier for him to keep things under wraps. Regardless, when Fergie was asked on those slopes at the snow <laughs> whether she was going to marry Prince Andrew, she very famously replied, and I cannot believe I'm going to have to read this out, <laughs> 
Poor Blimey Darling, You Must Be Joking, but she was sort of imitating a British soap opera character. <laughs> I love that we have no reference points. I can't this. even give you the quote <laughs> in the tone with which it was meant to be given because I don't know what the hell was going on. But she was kind of misleading the press when she gave that quote too because Andrew proposed to Fergie on the 19th of February, 1986, the day he turned 26 years old. Is this the Queenie going, 25 you can fuck around, date around. 26, you're getting married. Yeah, I reckon. <laughs> it's the same month though. Like that's literally the same month that yeah. she gave that quote. Fergie later said that when he proposed, she told him to sleep on it. She said, when you wake up tomorrow morning, you can tell me it's all a huge joke. These two are <laughs> rogue from the outset. And at this point in their lives, it feels sort of inoffensive. Mm. As we're going to learn later, their rogueness actually became offensive. Well, we said in our intro passage for this episode, they're a very confusing couple and that will be the major theme of all of these episodes. It wasn't a joke. Andrew did want to propose to Fergie and told her as such the next morning. The couple had in fact gotten engaged within mere months of meeting. Zara, they kept the actual engagement under wraps for about a month waiting until the 17th of March, 1986 to announce it publicly. Yeah, Andrew gave Fergie a Burmese ruby ring. The ruby gem, actually reportedly inspired by Fergie's distinctive red hair, was surrounded by 10 diamonds to form a flower shape on a gold band. Andrew said at the time, it is something we've discussed in the last few weeks and we've come to the mutual conclusion that red was probably the best colour for Sarah. That's how we came to the choice of the ruby. Then the extra bits on the outside Side, we wanted something a little more unconventional. As People Magazine wrote at the time, one of the most significant aspects of Prince Andrew's engagement to Fergie was that 30 or 40 years ago, the marriage would not have actually been allowed to happen. People Magazine described Fergie as a woman with a past. She had previously lived with two men, even though they were unmarried. At Buckingham Palace, the quote reads, where divorce is still enough to get a servant kicked out, Fergie might once have been blackballed for that. It's interesting how so much changes generation to generation because the fact that this was even a talking point then is really interesting. And then a generation later, we had, of course, Prince Harry marry an American actress who was divorced. Mm. So fascinating to me how slowly but quickly things can change. But as the magazine explained, Andrew was fourth in line for the crown and everyone liked Fergie. So he wasn't going to be king. He was, as every year he got older, becoming less important (laughs) in terms of the royal family. That is the reality. The same thing will happen to Prince Harry. And Fergie's popularity was pretty high. Yeah, really high. So they kind of were willing to turn a blind eye to it. People magazine also said that according to aristocratic genealogist Harold Brooks Baker, (laughs) wow, what a name, (laughs) name. Harold Brooks Baker, and I quote, today family background is much more important and Sarah's is unimpeachable. Yeah, they just care that they've all moved in the same circles. He went on, by all indications, it is an apt match. He, a fun-loving, cheerful prince with a penchant for adventure, amorous and otherwise, she, a spirited commoner with blue blood, a well-developed sense of humour and enough worldly experience to handle him. And look, even if Andrew was known for being cheeky, Fergie was definitely his match. Apparently, Diana and Fergie tried to gatecrash Andrew's bachelor party at a London nightclub dressed up as police women. I do love this story. I mean, whether or not the story is taken on a life of its own mm. as the decades go on, I don't really mind. I love the idea that these two women who married into a family 
that was so rigid. So stuffy and uptight. Yes. Like I had big personalities. Although it also makes you sad because you, you can sort of see then how those personalities were completely stifled. Mm. But I like hearing the parts of their personalities that we never ever got to hear. If they were able to find avenues for like pure cheekiness, I do love that. Exactly. The Washington Post reported that in the months following their engagement, Dummer, the town that Sarah Ferguson grew up in that we mentioned at the top of the episode, their narrow main and only road <laughs> became clogged with tourists and journos trying to gain some insight into, and I quote, the freckle-faced, slightly chunky redhead who will become Britain's newest princess. That should give you some insight into also the reporting that Fergie had to cop. Yeah, well, this is the thing. As much as people adored Fergie in the early days, as much as the public really latched onto her and approved to her initially, perhaps all too predictably, as time went on, she faced increasing media scrutiny around things like her weight and her appearance in particular. Yeah, at the time of their engagement, People magazine applauded Fergie for debuting a, and I quote, slightly more polished, slimmer version of herself. They also noted she'd apparently lost the weight by eating cottage cheese and salad. Mm, When Sarah Ferguson's wax figure was unveiled at Madame Tussauds, one photographer apparently jumped across the barriers and quickly wrapped a measuring tape around her hips to for once and all confirm the real size of her but he yelled out the number to onlookers. It's so yuck. Yeah, it's I mean, so yuck. I know that goes without saying, but for anyone to have to sort of live through this mm. constant, constant criticism about your body and your appearance is absurd to me. Like it's absolutely wild. And to be clear, we still have issues with how we report around celebrities' bodies, oh, both yeah. men and women, more predominantly how we report around women's bodies, though I would argue. However, this is like what we see today on heat. Like it is just 10,000 times worse. The stuff that we saw in the 80s and 90s when kind of anorexia chic was the main fashion trend is just really disheartening. And predictably, there were so many comparisons drawn between Fergie and Princess Diana. People magazine also wrote, even if the chunky, freckled Fergie lacked the glossy looks of Andy's previous girlfriends, Di's matchmaking instincts were on target. The quote went on, There is one person above all Sarah can thank when she becomes a princess later this year, Princess Diana. Yeah, the Washington Post also wrote around this time that, and I quote, Diana may take a better picture, but Fergie is more fun. Let's slap them both down then. I don't know which one I'd prefer. I think I'd prefer to be the more fun one, but imagine reading that. Like, oh, well, well, she's far more attractive than you are, but at least you have a personality. And then imagine being Diana reading that going, you're attractive, but you're fucking boring. Yeah, it's like the <laughs> ultimate neg. It's like a double-sided neg. And that's the Washington Post. This is not the Sun or no. the Daily Mail. It's the Washington Post writing this. Yeah. The paper continued to explain how, even though Fergie may not have had the same model-like looks as Diana, a lot of the British public loved her for her personality and relatability. This is the quote. Since she was transformed from an upper middle-class working girl with good connections to a princess, Sarah Ferguson has been besieged at every step by photographers, reporters and less professional gawkers. She has never been known not to smile for the cameras and has never been reported to display irritation at the invasion of her privacy. Sometimes she stops to chat or exchange a joke with working hacks and passers-by. The paper wrote later that, described as bonny rather than beautiful, Fergie has the homespun good looks that every mother loves and the weight problems with which many women 
sympathize. The language analysis that could be done on this is so interesting. There's also the added layer of people saying, well, Fergie's not as attractive or as slim as Diana, but at least she's grateful to be a royal. Like it's kind of this idea of Diana doesn't always love the press or Diana's Mm. sometimes snarky towards the press. Thank God Fergie just offers up every bit of her life and does so with a smile. And we'll find out as we keep going, quick spoiler alert, that that kind of never stops. That attitude from Fergie, this like sense of overwhelming gratefulness to be part of the family, to be in the public eye in the way that she was, extends well beyond just smiling at the press. Now, Fergie and Andrew were married on the 23rd of July 1986 at Westminster Abbey and were titled the Duke and Duchess of York. They were both 26. Yeah, they had 2,000 wedding guests, if you don't mind, including 17 members of foreign royalty, US First Lady Nancy Reagan and then Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. The guests were surrounded by 30,000 flowers. As someone who is currently planning a wedding and knows the price of flowers, I shudder to think of that bill. Prince Edward actually served as Prince Andrew's best man and his brother Prince Charles did a reading. Fergie wore an embroidered ivory scoop neck satin dress that had a 17-foot train and a 20-foot veil. I can see you Googling it right now. I am looking up the photos. You know what? It hasn't aged that badly. Compared to other dresses from the time, I'm going to swivel my little computer around I know what this looked like. I I don't mind that. I also don't mind it. It's the satin for me. The satin, yeah, but we can't hold satin against everyone. I feel like that was the one fabric used at the time. I also don't think we can hold any wedding dress against people, given (laughs) given how fashion's changed over the years. But these sleeves, as someone who had a mother who went for puffy upon puffy wedding sleeves, I do like that she went for a puffy sleeve with a more slimline vibe. Exactly. One article said that while she deserved the term radiant, she looked, and I quote, nervous and apprehensive outside Westminster Abbey as attendants fiddled with her hair. She also accidentally said Prince Andrew's middle name Christian during their vows. How dare she? Yeah, I know. <laughs> How dare she? No wonder she was nervous because an estimated 500 million people were watching on Surely any bride is like shit scared before she walks down the aisle when it's just in front of maybe 120 guests. Walking down an aisle in front of 500 million people might make you a little edgy. You you just simply couldn't think about it. Like you actually couldn't think about it. Thousands of spectators also line the streets of London. A hundred thousand people gathered together to watch their first kiss on the balcony of Buckingham Palace. And the wedding was followed by a party with 300 guests at Claridge's Hotel before the couple headed off for their honeymoon. Yeah, and from the outside, it looked like things were going okay for at least a little bit. I mean, they had their two daughters, Princess Beatrice in August 1988, followed by Princess Eugenie or Eugenie in March 1990. But Fergie later admitted that her marriage began to break down within a week of the wedding because of Prince Andrew's naval duties. Yeah, so not long after the wedding, Andrew was sent to sea and Fergie reportedly only saw him for 40 days a year for the first five years of marriage. 40 days a year is nothing. be very hard to keep a marriage alive especially with two kids like I know they have help of course but like keeping the love alive is very difficult when you hardly see each other yeah you'd forget the other person yeah (laughs) on top of that Prince Andrew's dad, Prince Philip, reportedly refused to let Fergie join him in the naval base in Portsmouth on the grounds that she would be too much of a distraction to him. So Fergie would wait around at the home in Buckingham Palace, which she later described as having pleated lampshades, bland carpeting, 
brownish wallpaper and sad electric fireplaces. As Tina Brown described in the Palace Papers, Fergie performed her royal round with notable gusto, but she was essentially living alone in a huge fusty hotel where any social spontaneity was curtailed by a need to give a whole day's notice to security and a menu summit with the master of the household. Fergie said that for a time she just stopped going out and would sit and eat her supper for one. Mm. Fergie said that the press also turned on her. Eight weeks after Beatrice was born in 1988, she wanted to go and see her husband, Andrew, who was in Australia at the time. Now, for context, Fergie says that Beatrice had a nanny. She was healthy. She was already on bottles. So Fergie was confident that her daughter would be totally okay if she left. But the press was not happy about this. They were not about to let up about it either. The headlines asked, is Fergie a bad mum for travelling 19,000 kilometres away from her baby? Outside of the media scrutiny and that isolation and loneliness, there was reportedly infidelity too. In 1989, Fergie apparently embarked on an affair with a Texas millionaire by the name of Steve Wyatt. The pair was said to have met at Houston Grand Opera's British Opera Festival, (laughs) a mouthful, (laughs) when she was pregnant with Eugenie. David Lee, co-author of The Duchess of York Uncensored, claimed that Steve Wyatt was the main reason for the breakdown of her marriage. She met him at a time in her life when she was exceptionally low and felt Andrew wasn't supporting her. I mean... I don't really blame her. Her life sounds so bleak. And imagine as well, like, the blatant unfairness of the media slamming you for leaving your eight-week-old baby as if that makes you a bad parent when the baby's dad dad is only home 40 days of the year. Is he a bad dad for only being home for 40 days of every year? What about the baby growing up with its dad around? Yeah, it's bizarre. Now, Fergie's marriage and reputation really imploded in 1992. The press actually leaked her plans to separate from Prince Andrew before they had time to announce it. And five months after that, salacious photos of her appeared on the front pages of the Daily Mirror, showing her toes being sucked or kissed. A great debate. By a lover in the south of France. But all of that on the next episode of Scandal. I cannot wait, Zara. Thank you to our researcher, Justine Landers-Hanley, for all of your work on this one as well. Come follow us, guys, on Instagram at Shameless Podcast. We'll be sharing the nostalgic throwback photos, including those of Fergie's wedding dress, which we know you'll all want to see. Yeah, I can't wait. Guys, we'll be back in your ears on Thursday for another wrap in the week that was in pop culture before coming back next week for another episode, as you said, Mish, of this two-part series. All right, guys, we'll see you then. Bye. Bye. Shameless Media. This podcast was recorded on Wurundjeri land. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land.